pull in starting tonight because if somebody misses the first five minutes, they missed half the lesson. Yeah, I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna preach this at all, and and uh, it may be a brief lesson, and this would be a good time if you got questions about something uh, to bring them up. But we're looking at Obadiah, and the lesson isn't short because Obadiah is short, but it is. But we said we wanted to focus on the main issue of the text and rather than going back into all the history there are a few things we can comment on. Uh, let's pray. Father we thank you for this time just to fellowship in your name and each one that's here Lord we thank you for each one of them pray your blessing on them on their homes. We're grateful for your goodness to us and grateful that we can still do what we're doing right now. And so you enter into our presence, our Father, we pray, in a special way and <clears throat> make this a useful time. And we give you blessing in that name above every name. Amen. Amen. Okay, Obadiah. The name means servant of the Lord. You remember Obed, who was a friend and servant to Jeremiah. Uh, this... Uh, addition of Yah on the end simply means servant of Yah or servant of Jehovah. Yah is the short form. The theme of the book is the curse of cowardice. Now it's very like Amos. You remember that the theme of Amos was national accountability. And in that book he was looking at all the nations, Gentile as well as uh, Israel and Judah. In this book uh, Obadiah is particularly focusing on the sin of Edom. Now, the commentators will tell you that he's writing to Israel about Edom. Well, uh, certainly it was Israel's prophet, and certainly Israel was hearing the message, but you can't discount the fact that the message is to Edom. It's a warning, in fact, a declaration of the judgment that's going to come upon them. Now, just for the record's sake, remember who Edom is. Uh, there is a an age-long antagonism that exists between two lines that have come out of Abraham. The first antagonism, of course, is uh, Isaac and Ishmael. And the difficulties that are going on in the Middle East right now are a result of the hatred that existed between Ishmael and Isaac. And the Arabs are descendants from Ishmael, and of course uh, Israelis are descendants from Isaac, and the prophecy that God gave uh, concerning uh, uh, the birth of Ishmael. He said he would be a wild man and that his hand would be against every man and every man's hand against him. Uh, he doesn't like himself. He doesn't like his relatives. He doesn't really like anybody. And when you talk about him making peace over an issue that now is tied directly to his religion, uh, then uh, you're looking at a at a situation which God alone is going to be able to settle and I think we're all aware of that that there'll be no true peace false peace yes but no true peace in the Middle East until ultimately the Prince of Peace comes now the second antagonism that existed in that line was that between Jacob and Esau now you remember that these two men were twins the same father same mother same birthday they were twins they were not identical twins not in any way for that matter uh, but uh, Esau uh, was uh, what we would call the, the self-made man, the uh, man of the field, 
I'll tell you quite frankly, if I'd known these two men as they were teenagers, I would say probably, I would, would doubtless have liked Esau as opposed to Jacob. Now, without looking at their personalities and so forth, I don't know. But based on what I'm reading in the scripture, I probably would have had a greater affinity for Esau. Esau was a hunter. Uh, Esau was an energetic individual. He had a strong personality. Uh, Jacob, on the other hand, was a mama's boy. He spent a great deal of time in the kitchen. Uh, it was his mother, you'll remember, that persuaded him to lie to his father as to who he was. And, and so there was a lot of matriarchal interference in the life of Jacob, which would not have excited me a great deal. So as these two men grow up, and we have this theft on the part of, of uh, Jacob of the birthright in the eyes of, of Esau, then from that point on, it was the determination of Esau to kill Jacob. Jacob, you'll remember, disguised himself as his brother went into his ailing father uh, whose eyesight was uh, pretty well gone and, and uh, faked the fact that it was uh, 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 not Jacob but Esau. And, uh, and Jacob says, are you indeed my son Esau? Oh yes, feel my hands. And they had, his mother had uh, tied uh, 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 those funny little animals with uh, horns, uh, goat hide, yes, on his hands. So he, because Esau was a hairy man and a rough man, he was redheaded. And uh, so he uh, uh, carried this charade off really quite well. Well, of course, he got the blessing. And understand that in their economy, the blessing, once it was given, was permanent. As a matter of fact, as a parenthesis, if an Israeli thought that he was about to be cursed by somebody, he'd fall flat on his face so the words would go over top of him because they believed that words had substance. So that when Jacob, uh, I'm sorry, when uh, Isaac blessed Jacob, then he was blessed. Well then, of course, in comes Esau, who had gone out to the field to get venison for his father and, and uh, uh, says, all right, bless me now. And he said, well, who are you? He said, I'm Esau. He said, well, I've already blessed you. <laughs> oh, no, you didn't. And so this hatred began right there. And Esau swore at that point. He said, the days of my father's mourning are at hand. And he said, after they're over, I'm going to kill Jacob. So Jacob split, you remember, to the house of Laban and lived there until ultimately the Lord sent him back. So out of that then grows this animosity because the house of Esau established their tribal nation in Edom. And Edom is the Hebrew word for red. Since I'm here, uh, Edom is red, Dom is blood, and Adam is man. The tie is evident, isn't it? And so here is this kingdom of Esau called Edom. Uh, later on in the days of the Romans and uh, the birth of Jesus, they were called Idumeans by the Romans. You remember one prominent Idumean who was in power when Jesus was born? His name was Herod the Great. He was an Edomite. And it wasn't difficult to understand why he would be easy for Herod the Great to kill all these Jewish children because he hated them anyway as they hated him. So Obadiah's prophecy comes out of all that background. And what Obadiah is prophesying against them as the reason of their judgment was because not only of their animosity 
uh, toward Israel and Judah, but because when Israel and Judah was in the midst of their affliction, we'll look at the verse in a moment, this Edom took advantage of. And it is a very uh, 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 dim view in the sight of God to uh, afflict what he afflicts. Let me read a portion, if I may please, from G. Campbell Morgan's book on Obadiah. I thought this was a great statement. He concludes his brief, uh, this book is on all the minor prophets, so it's, you know, very brief, but he concludes his study on minor, uh, on uh, uh, Obadiah with this statement. I'd like for you to hear it. Let the great powers of today, and remember that when I tell you what date it was written, let the great powers of today remember that the measure of a nation's patience with God's suffering Israel is the measure of that, name, uh, that nation's permanency. God is utterly unchangeable. You may boast of the armaments of the persecuting people. You may tell me of her gathering millions ready for battle. I care nothing. If she lifts her hand against God's chosen people, Israel, the very element of destruction is already at work within her. And though she build her nest among the stars, God will bring her down. The holy nation, of which we form a part by God's grace, grand truth, not very uh, often pointed to, is particularly called to express the pitifulness of his heart even toward those who are suffering the calamities of his judgments. One clear light burns ahead, leading us upward and onward. It is perfectly expressed in the closing words of Obadiah, the kingdom shall be the Lord's. But this phrase, this phrase, if she lift up her hand against God's chosen people, Israel, the very element of destruction, is already at work within her. And I knew that Morgan's ministry preceded uh, World War II and the rise to power of Hitler. That's what that looks like. But in fact, this was written in 1902, preached in fact, in 1902. And so he already saw that uh, element of anti-Semitism uh, that was rising in Europe and of course was present in uh, the Ottoman Empire which possessed the Middle East uh, at that time. And certainly he could have been prophetic uh, himself in his words because uh, without a doubt the elements of destruction were already working uh, in those nations. Now let me tell you a little bit about Edom and uh, many of you are sure if not all of you are aware of this but Edom's situation uh, in the Mount of Petra to the southeast of the Dead Sea was in their day an absolutely impregnable uh, fortress. Uh, some of you, I happen to be a, an Indiana Jones fan and some of you perhaps saw that film, uh, it was the last one, the Cru last, last Crusade I think. Anyhow the la final setting of that was in Petra. And uh, you'll recall when they rode in there they rode between these two great bluffs which only six or eight men could stand across and the Edomites had literally cut their homes out of the rocks in that place. And so they were convinced that any army that came against them, they would easily, three or four men, if, if for that matter, could easily hold off any army because they could not come through that narrow gorge in force. And if someone thinks of climbing up on the bluff above, you're talking about hundreds of feet. That's a long way down. And so there was no way to get down to them at that time. 
And so they were in this impregnable fortress. And hear the uh, words of Obadiah to them in verse 3. The pride of thine heart hath deceived thee, thou who dwellest in the cleft of the rock, whose habitation is high, who saith in his heart, Who shall bring me down to the ground? So there's an arrogance here as to their position. They felt like, no, nobody's going to be able uh, to, uh, to conquer us. Verse 4, Though thou exalt thyself like the eagle, and though thou set thy nest among the stars, from there will I bring thee down, saith the Lord. And here's the key. If thieves came to thee, if robbers by night, how art thou cut off? Would they not have stolen till they had enough? If the grape gatherers came to thee, would they not leave some grapes? How are the things of Esau searched out? How are the hidden things sought out? All the men of thy confederacy have brought thee even to the border. The men that were at peace with thee have deceived thee and prevailed against thee that they that eat thy bread have laid a trap under thee and there is no understanding in him. In simple terms, what God did historically was cut off their trade routes. And nobody traded with them anymore. And he literally starved them out. And the whole nation of Edom fell because they were starved out by those that were cut off from them. Of course, that whole area around there was under siege by the Babylonians at this time. And this book was written at about the time that Jerusalem fell. And this is the reason that God has an antagonism in this book toward this people. Look, please, at verse... Uh, well, let me read 11 for a little bit of context. Well, let me read 10, all right? How about 10 through 12? <laughs> for thy violence against thy brother Jacob, shame shall cover thee, and thou shalt be cut off forever. Notice now, when, Ob or when Obadiah addresses this, he goes all the way back to the root cause. Just as today in Israel, you can go all the way back to the root cause. It's Ishmael and Isaac. So the root cause here is the hatred that Esau had for Jacob and that Esau's posterity had for the posterity of Jacob. Verse 11. In that day thou stoodest on the other side in the day that the strangers carried away captive his forces and foreigners entered in uh, to his gate and cast lots on, a, on Jerusalem, even thou wast as one of them. In other words, when Babylon came in, all of the enemies of the Lord at that time came in and carried off Jerusalem. Then Edom just sat back until they were uh, weakened to the point of inability. And then they went in and reaped whatever was left. Verse 12. But you should not have looked on the day of thy brother in the day that he became a stranger. Neither shouldest thou have rejoiced over the children of Judah in the day of their destruction. Neither shouldest thou have spoken proudly in the day of distress. Thou shouldest not have entered into the gate of my people in the day of their calamity. Yea, thou shouldst not have looked on their affliction in the day of their calamity, nor have laid hands on their substance in the day of their calamity. And since I've come this far, neither shouldest thou have stood in the crossway to cut off those of his that did escape. Neither shouldest thou have delivered up those of his that remained in the day of distress." So whatever remnant was left uh, in Judah and Jerusalem after the Babylonians had carried them away and we're probably looking at the first carrying away in 606 B.C. Remember there were two carryings away. Uh, the latter including the destruction of the temple. 
Uh, we don't have that alluded to here, uh, but in all probability, uh, that's about the time period. And so there was a remnant, you'll remember, in that first carrying away that was left in uh, Jerusalem. They were brought into servitude. And then finally they rebelled and, and utter destruction came from the Babylonians upon them. And so we're really looking at Edom taking advantage of their weakness after that destruction. Now the whole thing I want to emphasize in this is that God takes a very dim view of afflicting what he has afflicted. I want you to look at some verses with me. First of all, Psalm 69. You know, I, I've probably said to the point of embarrassment, I kind of have a dirty hairy syndrome, and I like to see the bad guys get it. But uh, God uh, uh, doesn't really approve rejoicing over the fall of your enemies. <laughs> what a lesson. Uh, uh, 69, Psalm 69, did I tell you that? Yes. Uh, Psalm 69, of course, is a prophecy of those who rose up against the Lord Jesus. And uh, for time's sake, allow me a couple of verses here. 24, pour out thine indignation upon them. Let thy wrathful anger take hold of them. Let their habitation be desolate. Let none dwell in their tents. And here's the reason. For they persecute him whom thou hast smitten, and they talk to the grief of those whom thou hast wounded. Add iniquity to their iniquity, and let them not come in uh, to the righteous. Um, it's difficult at times uh, not to be glad when uh, evil people get their due. It's awfully difficult for me, anyhow, to leave justice with the Lord. Uh, if it were left to me, I would short-circuit God's justice without a doubt. <laughs> you, know? you let them Here's the principle of Romans chapter 1. You, you let them fill up their cup of iniquity so that they'll get a full cup of wrath. Let me stir up your pure minds by way of remembrance here, if I may. We've talked about this before. but If I were to uh, execute judgment in God's behalf, then what I would be doing is taking away a portion of what God is going to give them in His justice. And so he says, you let them alone and let them fill up their cup of iniquity. The questions often come up, why didn't God kill the devil? Why didn't God destroy? If God is a good God and a loving God, why didn't he wipe out these wicked people? And why does he let them go on and so forth? He's allowing them to fill up their cup of iniquity. Why? So that a full cup of wrath can be poured out on them. So if I short circuit uh, their cup of iniquity, you know, if, if I were to uh, take my gun and go blow the bad guy away before he's dipped, finish doing his bad things, then I have uh, short-circuited his full cup of iniquity. And therefore, he doesn't get a full cup of wrath. So God said, just let him go. Let the wicked grow with the righteous. Uh, let the wicked have their day, because their day is coming. And in that day, God will pour out that full cup of wrath. Here's a part of heaping coals of fire upon those who do you ill. Because one of these days, God's just going to turn the bucket upside down and rain it down on them. All right, let's have a look at another verse then. Zechariah chapter 1, verse 15, really uh, much uh, the same charge that Zechariah has. <coughs> Pardon me for this same deed. <clears throat> Although he expands it beyond 
just eat them. <clears throat> Zechariah chapter 1 verse 14. And so the angel that talked with me said unto me, Cry thou, saying, Thus saith the Lord of hosts, I am jealous for Jerusalem and for Zion with a great jealousy. Now that hadn't changed, by the way. Keep that in mind when you see everything that's going on over there. God is still jealous over that city. And right now they're still under his judgment, under his chastening. And verse 15, I am very much displeased with the nations that are at ease. For I was but a little displeased, and they helped forward the affliction. Oh my. Dim view God took of that. Now look at with me to Proverbs and chapter 17. Which way is Proverbs? I think it's back here. Isn't it? <clears throat> Let me get 24 while I'm at it. I got two verses here I want you to take note of. One here and one in 24. Proverbs 17 and verse 5. Whoso mocketh the poor reproaches his maker, and he that is glad at calamities shall not be unpunished. That's kind of a scary verse. <laughs> you know, because uh, I do uh, take joy at uh, seeing the bad guys get it. Now, in the context, obviously, of this verse, he's talking about the poor. And uh, uh, the uh, unjust who would uh, misuse and uh, exploit the, the poor. But nonetheless, the principle still stands. He that's glad at calamities shall not be unpunished. Uh, we used to quote this verse. As a matter of fact, when I was in college, when somebody would trip on the steps, uh, in the, we had a very old building and a very old carpet, and, and uh, it had a lower, um, how do you call that, uh, reading area or whatever, lounge. And uh, someone fall and we'd laugh. And someone would immediately make reference <laughs> to this verse. He that's glad at calamity shall not be unpunished. Look out, yours is next. All right, come over with me to chapter 24. And verse 17. This gets a little more particular. A little more meddling, if you would. Rejoice not when your enemy falls, and let not your heart be glad when he stumbles, lest the Lord see it, and it displease him, and he turn away his wrath from him. Does anyone happen to have an amplified Bible here? I should have picked one up. I don't have one anymore. and should have picked one up. But interestingly, uh, the amplified in verse 18 uh, perhaps takes a little liberty uh, but uh, the translators felt that in terms of commentary it was legitimate. And so they add in the brackets as they often do when they're putting something in there that isn't really in the text. And so they add in this verse, lest the Lord see it and he turn away his wrath from him and turn that wrath on you. <laughs> There's a happy thought. Now they grant the fact that that isn't in the text, but they felt that there was a certain implication of that. Uh, in the verse. 
<laughs> it does, yes. It uh, sort of makes you think about it. Now, obviously, now come with me please to one last passage. and That's all I'll have for tonight. This is Matthew 25. We talked about this in connection uh, with our discussion of uh, the book of Joel, you'll remember. But what this really comes down to is, in the final analysis, is uh, 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 vengeance is mine, saith the Lord, and I will recompense. And one of the characteristics that should be manifest in believers is uh, wise as serpents, but what? Harmless as doves. Uh, it, it is a, a difficult thing for such people as we are uh, to be harmless as doves. We'd like to be wise as a serpent. We'd also like to strike now and then. Uh, that's inconsistent with the nature of the Lord. And the Apostle Peter emphasizes, you'll remember, in his epistle that uh, Jesus, in the manner of his walk with his enemies now is, is the meaning of this, uh, is to be our example. Obviously, we're not saved by example. I, I think about this uh, when I uh, hear some preacher who's a real preacher preach. I wonder why in the world I'm in a ministry, you know. I read a book after some of these men, and I think to myself, why don't I just hand these people this book and let them read it? You know, <laughs> that would take care of everything. Uh, perfect example does not improve performance. We all know that, don't we? Uh, I mean... Uh, uh, I, I've never learned to play chopsticks, but I'm sure listening to Clavern would not improve it if I did. So, you know, it, we're not saved by Jesus' example, but there is an example in his walk. And the example in his walk was non-retaliation. Uh, if uh, you're persecuted for righteousness' sake, now there are other matters here about which I am not now speaking, but if you're persecuted for righteousness' sake, then Jesus said, don't retaliate. Do what? Bless. Rejoice. Bless them and rejoice in it. One friend of mine said that uh, he was going through some uh, rejection and difficulty with some people and he, he uh, used to travel a lot from town to town and he said he developed this mini leap. You know, the scripture says leap for joy. So he developed this mini leap and he does this little bit here. Leaping for joy. Uh, it's a difficult thing because it's totally contrary to our nature, but there's the whole key to it. It's totally contrary to our nature. Now, I must put this parenthesis in, and I think this is important. We're talking about being persecuted for righteousness' sake, uh, reviling you and, and uh, persecuting you, and all manner of evil being said against you for his name's sake. We're not talking about the thief that breaks in your door. We're not talking about the individual who would steal your goods and do injury to your family. That's a whole different story. And, and for him, you have other uh, resources, shall we say. All right? But if they come to arrest you for preaching the gospel, lay down your arms, stick out your hands, let them carry you away. For God will give you in that hour what words to speak, and he said it'll be a testimony against them. So non-retaliation against persecution for righteousness sake is the position of the believer. Not to retaliate against it. Now, what we're looking at here, some of those verses obviously speak to individual attitudes. What we're looking at in Obadiah is of course the national attitude. Uh, 
And there is a national justice just as there is an individual justice. And we've tried to emphasize so often that righteousness for an individual is predicated on what have you done with Jesus who is called Christ. Yes? Righteousness for a nation is predicated on what have you done with Israel. And so in Matthew chapter 25, if I could uh, appeal to this uh, passage once again, beginning at verse 31. When the Son of Man shall come in His glory and all the holy angels with Him, then shall He sit upon the throne of His glory and before Him shall be gathered all nations. I remind you once again, this is not an individual judgment. This is a national judgment, collective. I remind you as well that when nations are judged, if they are judged as unrighteous, then the righteous in the unrighteous nation experience equally that judgment. Case in point, when, when Judah was carried away captive by the Babylonians for their unrighteousness, for their iniquity, then the righteous in Judah were carried away captive with them, were they not? Uh, uh, Daniel and his three friends, you'll remember, Hananiah, Mishael, Azariah, we can assume that they were not the only righteous in the land, but they were certainly among them. By the same token, when a righteous nation is blessed by God for its righteousness, then the unrighteous in that nation share equally in that blessing. The mixed multitude that came out of Egypt with Israel were sharing in the blessing of the Israelites, uh, uh, the abundance that was uh, uh, placed upon them. And so I think uh, we're not in a position in this country right now uh, to uh, uh, be uh, dogmatic, shall we say, in either case. Uh, if we are a righteous nation in the sight of God, then certainly the unrighteous in this nation are reaping that blessing. If we are unrighteous in the sight of God, then the righteous in this nation are all that's maintaining its existence, for we are the salt of the earth. All right, so this is a national judgment. It is not an individual judgment at all. And uh, so he says, goes on to say, he shall separate them one from another as the shepherd divides his sheep from the goats. And he shall set the sheep on one side, on his right hand, and the goats on his left. Keep your finger there and come with me, please, to Isaiah in chapter 14. <laughs> Sorry. Now, Isaiah 14 is a prophecy of the fall of Satan. You remember that, don't you? Uh, Satan is the ruler of the nations, the kingdoms of this world. He is the god of this age, and he is the uh, prince of this world, Jesus said. Paul calls him the god of this age. Jesus called him the prince of this world. One is religious, the other is political. Well, here you have a view of it beginning at verse 9 of Isaiah 14. Sheol from beneath has moved for thee to meet thee at thy coming. It stirs up the dead for thee, even all the chief ones of the earth. It hath raised up from their thrones all the kings of the nations. All they that speak and say unto thee, Art thou also become weak as we? Art thou become like us? Thy pomp is brought down to the Sheol, and thy noise of thy lutes the worm is spread under thee and the worms cover thee. 
Now this is initially a prophecy of Babylon's fall. But this is also in the uh, in prophetic interpretation what's called the law of double reference. We won't get into that right now. But it goes beyond Babylon to address the reign of the Antichrist, Satan over him, and his ultimate destruction. But verse 9 again, if I may. Uh, we've mentioned in the hearing of some of you, if not all of you, that the one form of Hebrew poetry is called synthetic. It is either synthetic, uh, 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 I'm sorry, parallelism, forgive me please, parallelism. It's either synthetic parallelism or antithetic parallelism. Synthetic parallelism is two statements in the same verse. Uh, the uh, uh, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. Two statements, same verse, same impression. Uh, the Lord knows the way of the righteous, the way of the ungodly will perish. Antithetic, two statements, same verse, contradictory. Uh, not contradictory, I'm sorry, but uh, what's the word? Opposites, yes. Now you have that in verse 9. And I want to more literally translate. And this is synthetic parallelism. But I want to more literally translate if I may. Sheol from beneath is moved for thee at thy coming. It stirs up the dead for thee, even all the great goats of the earth. It hath raised up from their thrones all the kings of the nations. So the great goats are the kings of the nations. Now a lot could be said about that now, but we don't have time for that. So come back to Matthew 25. He is separating what? The sheep from the goats. The great goats of the nation are ultimately going to get theirs. But the way they're going to get theirs is, and we addressed this when we were talking about Joel, is that the goat nations are going to be sold into servitude to the sheep nations, first to Israel and then to the sheep nations. And the sheep nations are ultimately going to be receiving the abundance of God's blessing in the earth. For when we come into the kingdom, pardon me, we still have evil, but Christ is on the throne. And evil will be put down quickly, immediately, when it raises its head. And this will be the economy in the earth at that time, when the sheep nations, those that are found righteous because they dealt rightly, justly with Israel. And we read on and we pick that up. Then shall the king say unto them on his right hand, Come ye blessed of my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. Oh, I must make this comment. You notice their kingdom was prepared from the foundation of the world. That was the point of their beginning. Ephesians chapter 1 and verse 4. We were chosen in him from before the foundation of the world. The believer has his roots in eternity. The nations have their roots in time. And he said to them, I was hungry and you gave me no food. Thirsty, you gave me no drink. Stranger, you did not take me in naked, and you clothed me sick, and you visited me in prison, and you came to me. Then shall the righteous answer, When, Lord? And he explains, You've done it on one of these to be my brethren. This is not Jesus talking about his bride or his wife. He's talking about his brethren, and his brethren are Israel. The term is used again in Hebrews to talk about the brethren in the house of Israel. And then, of course, he turns uh, to the goats. Uh, the king shall answer and say unto them, Verily I say unto you, Inasmuch as you have done it unto, verse 40, The least of these, my brethren, you have done it unto me. And then shall he also say unto them on his left hand, Depart from me, you cursed, 
into everlasting fire prepared for the devil and his angels and he gives them the same scenario because they saw him in this condition did nothing uh, to help them they go away verse 46 into everlasting punishment allow a quick commentary on verse 41 you'll notice the phrase prepared for the devil not created for but prepared for uh, some of the dear saints have pointed out that our God is a consuming fire and that hell, the lake of fire, could not exist apart from God. Nothing can exist apart from God. And this is a reflection of his own bosom, of his own nature. And therefore, it didn't have to be created. It already is because it's part of him. But it is prepared for the devil and his angels and all those that are under the authority, the great goats of the earth, are going to ultimately find themselves there. Thus, verse 46, these shall go away into everlasting punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. And that, at the end of this 1,000-year reign, when they shall serve, have served in servitude to the sheep nations. <coughs> Pardon me. Comments or questions? <coughs> The curse of cowardice, because they would not attack Judah while Judah was strong, and they waited till they were utterly wasted, and then they went into their weakness. Well, Keith, it seems to me that if the nations, the, the nations other than Israel, how they affect, how can the own people, I mean, they, they are Israelites too, weren't they? Wasn't, wasn't the other nations? No, 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 no. The, Esau was a he. No, 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 no. It didn't happen. At the, I'm, no, no. Esau was not an Israelite. He was. Wait, let's get the. I, uh, it's a good I'm question. Yeah. Well, let me let me break that down because it's a good question. Right. A lot of people. I was in a meeting up in Ozona, Odessa, Midland, and Odessa, Odessa. Okay, at the right place. One time, and and a, a man brought up this uh, uh, question of the Arabs uh, being. Uh, Israelites, and I said, "Oh no!" Uh, and he was shocked at that. It was a preacher, which surprised me. He was shocked at that. Uh, Abraham was the first Hebrew. Hebrew, by the way, means river crosser, and uh, he is the first Hebrew. It's also a derivative of of uh, son of Eber, uh, it was uh, one of the out of the line of Noah. But that's more to the story. So it means river crosser. He was the first Hebrew. Then he begat Isaac. And Isaac begat Jacob, and Jacob was the first Israelite. Not Esau, his brother. Okay. God changed Jacob's name to Israel. So we have Abraham as a Hebrew, Isaac as a Hebrew, Jacob as a Hebrew, Esau as a Hebrew, but Jacob is an Israelite. And out of Jacob then comes the twelve sons. All of them Israelites, all of them Hebrews, because they all have their origin in Abraham. So if these 12 sons that are uh, Hebrews, they're also Israelites. But one of those sons was called Judah, right? Out of Judah came the Jew. When Judah was carried away captivity to the Babylonians, he obtained the name Jew, which came out of Judah. Now, what we've done today is applied the name Jew to everybody that ever came out of Jacob, which is inaccurate misnomer correct word but 
but we have generalized that, you know, like saying uh, instead of refrigerator, you say Kelvinator. Well, we used to anyway, or icebox. We used to do that, yeah, uh, and it isn't. Uh, we instead of uh, tissue, we say Kleenex, and maybe it isn't. And so we've kind of generalized that term, you know, made it generic or whatever. Uh, but technically speaking, Abraham was a Hebrew. All out of him are Hebrews. Jacob was an Israelite. All out of him are Israelites. Uh, Judah was the first Jew, and therefore all out of Judah are Jews. And that's why you see that term uh, after the captivity of uh, Babylon and their return from Babylon. And of course, when Jesus uh, was uh, talking with the woman of Samaria, he said, we know what we worship because salvation is of the Jews. Yes. And he's looking at Judah because salvation came out of the line of Judah. So, uh, no, those uh, others, like uh, Ishmael, for example, uh, all these others that are Arabs and may have had their origin in Abraham are not Israelites. Now, uh, let me add one thing to that. Uh, technically speaking, in that day, the whole body of Christ is going to be caught in, brought into the commonwealth of Israel and the covenants of promise because we're the bride of the king over that nation. So technically... Ultimately, we will be identified as well with them. But now there is that distinction because Israel is put away until the fullness of the Gentiles is come in. But that's a good question. I'm glad you asked that because there, there is a lot of overgeneralization uh, of that term uh, so often. Now, keep right. When you think about the millennium, it seems like it's hard to relate to. It's kind of which is understatement. Yes, I think. But when you, well, we're used to being just, you know, regular everyday scumbags. Now that was not an understatement. But during the millennium, we're going to be the animating principle. Yes. And so it's not going to be like the. I think that from what I understand is that we're going to be working, we're going to have jobs during the millennium, and we're going to be working with the people on the earth, but they're still going to be animated by blood, right? That's correct. So we're going to have a, a sort of a major difference. We'll have a resurrection body. Now, uh, how that body is going to manifest itself to the rest of the world, you know, that remains to be seen. Jesus had a resurrection body when he met with the disciples before his ascension. Uh, he did not have a glorified body as yet. Uh, technically, we will have, but I don't know how that body will present itself to the world. But the animating principle of a resurrection body is not blood, but spirit. That's why Jesus said to the disciples after his resurrection, uh, handle me and see, for spirit hath not flesh and bones, as you see me have. Uh, but the animating principle of the natural body blood will be true, yes. Of, of the rest of the world that's come into the millennium, true of these nations. Now, that is at least one of the things, obviously, that's going to give not only authority but power uh, to those that are in reign, uh, i.e. the church and uh, uh, redeemed Israel. Um, you remember there's a difference between authority and power. You know, we used to illustrate it this way. If you get uh, you know, the guy with the bubblegum machine, if he pulls you over to the side of the road because you're going 90 miles an hour in a 30-mile-an-hour zone, 
he comes up to you and he says, may I see your driver's license? You know, he's being polite, but he's got this badge here that says he has authority. Now, if you challenge that authority, he has power hanging on his side. So the distinction between the two is being able to back up what you're saying, what, what office you hold. And the very fact that the believer is indeed a resurrected being is a part of the power he'll have to back up his authority. You think Petra will be the place where the remnant will end up? That's uh, a very popular opinion, and I share it, yes. Obviously, it can't be absolutely positive, but it's a popular opinion, opinion and, and I certainly share it. J.E. Blackstone, a wealthy millionaire from previous generation, was so sure of that, it was reported that he, held, he hid uh, Jewish scriptures in Petra so that the remnant, when they're uh, secluded there, would find them. Maybe. Um, well, yes. There are some passages in Isaiah that would lend uh, credibility to that view. Anything else? Father, again, we give blessing to you. <clears throat> You're faithful to your word, <clears throat> faithful to your purposes, and thereby faithful to us, and we thank you. You're the Lord, you change not. Therefore, we're not consumed. How we bless you for the assurance we have of that day. Amen. Bless you all.